Friends, many desired, many, many people desired to boycott the 2008 Beijing Olympics due to the human rights violations and religious rights violations. But so many who wished to withdraw their support for China's involvement in the Olympics were at the same time, and usually unknowingly, giving their support to China in other ways. Whether it was the t-shirt on their back or the shoes on their feet, they were saying one thing and they were doing another. If you called some, one of these people out on their hypocrisy, it, was, it would be probably likely that they would uh, find an excuse for their oversight. It's probably likely that they would uh, beat around the bush, if you will, and, and try to avoid the issue, try to make excuses when in fact they should have owned up to the fact that they were hypocrites. Well, such hypocrisy, friends, should never be overlooked. It should never be overlooked. And in our study in the Gospel of Mark today, Jesus certainly is not going to allow hypocrisy to go unchallenged. The title of my message is uh, kind of a peculiar one. The title is, Put an End to Equivocation. Put an End to Equivocation. And you say, well, equivocation, what does that mean? Good question. Let's take a look at the dictionary definition of equivocation. The definition of equivocation or equivocate is to use ambiguous or unclear expressions, usually to avoid commitment or in order to mislead. In our story today, friends, Jesus is going to encounter a group of religious leaders who initially are going to strongly protest. They're going to strongly boycott what Jesus has done in the temple. They're going to look at what Jesus has done and say, no, no, He can't do that. We're not going to sanction that. We're going to protest. We're going to boycott that. And yet, amidst their boycott, amidst their protest, they're soon going to be revealed for the men that they truly are. Men with a lot of bark and not a lot of bite. Friends, these religious leaders are going to be proven. Jesus is going to prove their hypocrisy. He's going to prove their equivocating language. How they'll say one thing but do another. How they'll mislead the people though in an attempt to protest or boycott Jesus' actions. As we begin to turn to Mark chapter 11, turn to Mark chapter 11 right now, the story that we're about to read most likely directly follows the story of the fig tree we, we read last week. Jesus has just cleared out the temple. He's cleared out the money changers. And now He has returned to the temple with His disciples. And a crowd of people have amassed as well, including some of the religious leaders of Israel. And so the stage is set here for quite a confrontation. Let's take a look at this story together. Starting in verse 27, we'll go to verse 33. It says, then they, presumably Jesus and his disciples and perhaps a crowd, came again to Jerusalem. And as Jesus was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question. 
Then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, well, if we say from heaven, then he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, well, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. And so they answered and said to Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, I pray that today You would enlighten our eyes, illuminate our eyes, help us to see Your truth clearly. Father, help us to see through hypocrisy, through equivocation, through words that are spoken but are meant to mislead. Father, I pray that You would help us learn from the story in Mark today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's go again to verse 27 and 28. It says this, Then they came again to Jerusalem. They came again to Jerusalem. And as Jesus was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to Him and they said to Him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Now Mark lists three people groups that uh, have come, have approached Jesus, His disciples, and the crowds. He's listed the chief priests, He's listed the scribes, and He's listed the elders. The three groups of which have come together and these three groups constitute what is known as the Sanhedrin. Now the Jewish Sanhedrin was a group of 71 uh, Jewish religious leaders. They were the highest Jewish religious tribunal in the land. They were both religious, uh, religious officials and they were also judicial officials. They would also hear uh, court matters and give, render judgment upon people, even in criminal cases. And so the Sanhedrin, the people group that Jesus is speaking to, they are members of this Sanhedrin. And as the religious leaders, friends, they were entrusted with the responsibility of the temple. They were entrusted with the responsibility of the temple. They were the temple authorities. And it should come as no surprise, friends, that when Jesus drastically alters the business of the temple, when He clears out the money changers, when He goes into the court of the Gentiles, overturns tables and shoes away those selling doves and those uh, making business transactions, it should come as no surprise that these are the people who are now confronting Him the very next day. And they confront Him. They come up to Him and they say, by what authority? By what authority are you doing these things, Jesus? Who gave you this authority? You know, the way in which that question is worded, uh, as one scholar pointed out, Craig Evans, he said the way this, this question is phrased, it assumes some kind of authorization. It assumes that someone has given Jesus authorization to do what He did. In other words, no Jewish person in that day and age would ever consider doing what Jesus did 
had they not had some kind of authorization. No one would even consider it. And so they, come, they approach Jesus, members of the Sanhedrin, and they come up to Him asking, who gave you this authority? Who told you you could do this? Because surely you wouldn't do this on your own. No one would. Now keep in mind, the questions that are being posed to Jesus right now, they're not just being spoken to Jesus in private. It's very likely here that these questions are being spoken in the midst of the disciples and in the midst of the multitudes. Many, many people have gathered and are listening in on the dialogue, on the confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. And I want to ask the question, what are they hoping to accomplish by publicly questioning Jesus? What are they hoping to accomplish? Friends, they were forcing Jesus to give one of two answers. And I want to look at these uh, one by one here. But, but they were trying to force Jesus into giving one of two answers. Let's take a look at what the options are. One, they, they wanted Jesus to either say, I had no right to do what I did in the temple. They would have loved that answer. Or, they wanted Jesus to say something to the effect of, I was authorized by God to do what I did in the temple. Now in their minds, friends, it didn't matter which answer He gave. It didn't matter which answer He gave. For either way, either way, they would have then had a basis upon which to bring Jesus to trial. It didn't matter whether Jesus gave answer one or answer two. In their eyes, so long as He gave an answer, it would give them a basis upon which to bring Him to trial. On the one hand, if Jesus admitted His actions were not authorized by anyone, then the Sanhedrin lawyers would have an easy day in court, wouldn't they? Condemning a man who admitted guilt. Such actions in the temple, friends, were punishable even by death. Not only that, but if Jesus admitted fault, it would have effectively ruined His ministry, crushed the hopes of many who thought Him to be the Messiah or at least a great prophet. They would have loved answer number one. On the other hand, if Jesus suggested that His actions in the temple were authorized by God, then another formal proceeding would take place before the Sanhedrin. Another formal court date would, would, would take place to determine whether or not Jesus was a prophet. Whether He possibly was the very Messiah, the very Son of God. And either way, the religious leaders of Israel were seeking any answer, any answer from Jesus, so that they could put Him in court. They wanted Jesus on trial. And they had him right where they wanted him, didn't they? They had him right where they wanted him. Whatever answer Jesus gave would land him before a judge. They had him completely cornered. So they thought. Let's take a look at verses 29 and 30. Verses 29 and 30. But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question. Then answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's my question. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? Answer me that. 
How many of you play chess? Raise your hand if you're a chess player. All right, how about checkers? Come on, raise your hand if you're a checkers player. All right, all right, a little few more. Trying to get more people involved here. How many of you play hopscotch? All right, chess. Great game. Amazing game. One of the, in my opinion, the greatest game of all time. All right. All right, I'm, I'm fudging a little. Uh, okay. A great game. You can go in chess. You can go, a, a, as a player, you can go from completely being on the defensive, completely being attacked, completely being on the defense, hoping and guarding all of your pieces, most especially your king, because if you lose him, you lose the game. You can go from complete defense and one move, one great move, can put you from the defensive to the offensive. One great move can take you from near defeat to absolute victory. One checkmate is all it takes. My father-in-law would attest to the fact that I always put him in checkmate, and he knows what that's like. I'm just kidding. Friends, Jesus, in this instance, makes that one great move. He makes that one great move. Previously, he was on the defensive. The Pharisees had asked him a question. The, the, the members of the Sanhedrin had asked him a question. They had cornered him. Answer one, trial. Answer two, trial. Either way you go, you're going to court. And Jesus had one great move left. And He made that move. And as He did, the spiritual elites of Israel went from the offensive to the defensive. They had Him cornered. But with one great move from Jesus, Jesus was no longer cornered. Without even asking for their permission, Jesus decides to play a little game with the religious leaders. He says, I'm going to ask you a question first. Answer me and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. They were testing Jesus, but now Jesus is testing them. And here's the test. The test Jesus poses to them is... The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me that. There's my test, Jesus says. Answer me this one simple question, and I will answer you yours. Answer me this, and I will tell you why I did what I did in the temple. I will tell you by what authority I did the things that I did. Now, it's... uh, It's easy to just keep reading right here. Uh, It's easy to continue on to the next verse quickly. Um, We want to continue through the story, but, but the fact that Jesus mentions John here, the fact that Jesus mentions John here is of tremendous importance. Um, A casual reading of this text uh, will miss it. A careful reading of this text will notice that John the Baptist has special significance for the person of Jesus and for what He did in preparation for Jesus' ministry. Uh, Jesus mentions the baptism of John here. Let's go back to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark and read something unique that was said about John. Let's take a look. It says this, "...the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger." 
This is John the Baptist. Before your face, this would be the Messiah, Yahweh's representative, who will prepare your way before you. Behold, I send my messenger, John the Baptist, before your face, the Messiah, Yahweh's Redeemer, who will prepare your way before you. Now verse 2, friends, of Mark 1-2 is clearly an Old Testament quotation. It's taken from Malachi 3. But what is particularly remarkable about this text in Malachi 3 is what it says about the person who will follow John the Baptist. Let's go back to Malachi now. Behold, same text, I send my messenger, John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? He is like refiner's fire, like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Where is Jesus? Is He speaking? Um, as he's speaking in our story today, where is he? He's in the temple. What has he just done the day before to the temple? Has he not cleansed it? Has he not purged it? Has he not purified it? Has he not brought judgment upon it? Has he not purified the sons of Levi, the, the people of Israel? Why are the religious leaders questioning Jesus? Are they not upset about Jesus' actions in the temple? The temple. The very place where they expected the Redeemer to come and to bring forth judgment. You see, friends, Jesus, by alluding to John the Baptist in verse 30, is making a very veiled but clear to those with eyes to see a very veiled reference to His own authority, to His own person as the Messiah of Israel, the messenger of the covenant of God. He is the Lord. And He is beginning to cleanse and to purify the very house of Almighty God. He is beginning to carry out what we read in Malachi chapter 3. When Jesus alludes to John's baptism, He doesn't do it with happenstance. He doesn't do it just, oh, let me pick something. No, He does it very strategically. He says, what about John? And Oh yeah, remember who comes after John? And remember where he goes? And remember what he does in the place that he goes? Yeah, the Redeemer comes after John. And he goes to the temple. And he purifies it. That is not to suggest that what Jesus did in Mark 11 completely fulfilled Malachi 3. I actually don't think that's the case. But I think it was a type of fulfillment. It was a prelude toward the final fulfillment that will come on the day of the Lord. 
Jesus has come and he's cleansing his temple. He's cleansing the house of God. And the religious leaders of Israel, they cannot see that truth. Would they recognize Jesus for who he is? Let's take a look at verse 31. Verse 31. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, and he will say to us, Why then did you not believe John? But if we say from men, well, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. John's baptism, is it from heaven or from men? Well, let's take a poll. Yeah, that's it. Let's take an opinion poll. Let's send out, uh, let's send out those pollsters and uh, see what everybody wants us to answer. See if we can find a middle ground. The right, uh, the right answer is what everybody else wants, right? That's what we're seeing them do here. Uh, Mike Huckabee was a presidential, uh, Republican presidential candidate, and uh, he lost in the primaries, as, uh, as we all know. John McCain is the Republican nominee now. Uh, Mike Huckabee, a Christian man, good man. Um, I don't, I, I'm not here to endorse Mike Huckabee. I, I didn't vote for him, so in all honesty, you know, you know I'm not endorsing him per se here, but... Um, but he said something throughout his campaign, throughout his campaign, that really rung true to me. Um, it stayed with me, and I wanted to share this quote with you about leadership. Mike cut could be on leadership here. He says there are two kinds of leaders. There are thermometers and there are thermostats. A thermometer can read the temperature of the room and report it. Some politicians are like thermometers. They conduct opinion polls and take positions that mirror the temperature. Thermostat leadership is different. A thermostat can read and report the temperature, but it also adjusts the temperature to what it should be. Thermostat leadership is aware of poll numbers, but is even more aware of the principles worth living for and dying for. I can't put that any better. I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. I think we can all agree with that statement. Friends, we don't take polls to figure out what our answer should be. We're not to be thermometers and to adjust to whatever the winds of change call us to adjust to. We're to be thermostats. We're to be people who know what truth is, who know what godly principles are, and who stand for them regardless of what the culture tells us. Huckabee is spot on with this statement. And it, it, it would do all of our government well to pay attention to these kinds of words. Back to our text. Jesus says, The baptism of John, heaven or men? Answer me this. Where was it from? And Mark says, Well, they reasoned among themselves. That word reason there, friends, can actually have a sense of equivocation. They equivocated. They talked ambiguously. They talked generically. They spoke in lofty statements. They huddled up and they took a poll. They knew they couldn't say that John's baptism was from heaven because if they did, they knew Jesus would ask them, why did you not follow John? 
And they also knew that they couldn't say John's baptism was a figment of John's imagination. For they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. And that's, that's a striking statement, friends. That tells us that the vast majority, or at least the majority of the crowds that were there with them in the temple, the vast majority of Israel believed John the Baptist was a man of God. A great prophet of Israel. The crowds supported John. And the religious leaders feared the support of the recently beheaded John the Baptist. They were fearing the fact that 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 support had now transferred over to the very much alive Jesus of Nazareth. Luke, If you read Luke's account of this story, Luke 20, verse 6, it suggests that the crowd's support of John was so strong that that the leaders of Israel feared that they would be stoned if they said... John's baptism was a figment of John's imagination. They feared they would be stoned by the people. And just like that, just like that, the leaders of Israel went from being on the offense to completely being on the defense with respect to Jesus. They once had Jesus right where they wanted Him and now Jesus had cornered them. Look at verse 33. So they answered and said to Jesus, Yeah, we don't know about that one. John's baptism, heaven or men? Ah, you know, as religious leaders of Israel, as those who know the Torah well, as those who have all the answers for the spiritual growth of our people, Israel, we would like to firmly declare Jesus that we don't know whether John the Baptist's baptism was from heaven or men. Man, that's a tough one. That's a tough answer. Uh, one scholar makes this remark about this answer. He says this, Ben Witherington says, when they say they don't know whether John's baptism is of God or not, they are simply refusing to answer. They are not really ignorant of John and his authority. They are simply unwilling to acknowledge it. Be careful of people like this. Be careful if you're a person like this. Be careful of people who dodge answers, who duck questions. Be careful of people who equivocate, who speak ambiguously. The Bible speaks highly of the person who is slow to speak. But the one who refuses to speak the truth when they know what is true, James has something to say about them. He says, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. It is sin to do what the religious leaders are doing right now. Here we are in the the thick of uh, presidential politics. Uh, We're electing presidents, we're electing senators, we're electing representatives, we're voting on propositions. Uh, A lot of people I know, uh, both in this church and without, are are glued to the television, watching speeches and, and evaluating candidates, right? As you evaluate the options before you, I encourage you to ask yourself which candidates are answering questions posed to them. Which candidates 
are answering with truthful answers? And which candidates are ducking and dodging and evading answers? Which candidates are avoiding giving answers out of fear of public reprisal? I, for one, will not vote for any politician of any party who I sense is avoiding answers in an attempt to save face or to please a crowd. It's not a matter of political party here. This is a matter of principle. Vote for candidates who give you answers, who speak truth, who speak honestly. Be careful of candidates who speak evasively, who speak ambiguously. The so-called religious guardians of Israel, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, members of the Sanhedrin, have answered a very simple question about the spiritual nature of a recently supposed prophet of Israel, John the Baptist. They've answered it with the words, well, we don't know. We don't know what he was, actually. What do you think that did to their level of credibility with the crowd? These were supposedly the men with the answers. And here they had none. They had come, they had come to Jesus as the authorized temple representatives. They had come to Jesus as the authorized religious leaders of Israel coming to confront Him for what He had done in the temple. Coming to confront Him for the defilement that they had seen Him do just the other day. They had come with a view to protect the Jewish religion, to protect the temple. Craig Evans says this. He says, ostensibly or apparently or presumably, there to protect the temple as God's house from arbitrary acts of unauthorized persons and to take actions, to take actions against such persons, these representatives of the Sanhedrin and the ranking priests show their true colors. Rather than defend the temple, they protect themselves. It is an embarrassing display of cowardice. It is. You got the cowardly lion up there. It is an embarrassing display of cowardice. Uh, I believe this is one of the, mo the moments of all the Gospels where the leaders of Israel were most embarrassed, most read. And it was because they equivocated. It was because they didn't answer truthfully. Because they took a poll and did not speak their, the truth. Jesus finishes up, verse 33. Jesus answered and said to them, Well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus says, So be it. If you'll not answer my question, I'm not going to answer yours. I'll wait for you. And here the story ends. It ends rather abruptly. Jesus avoided the trap. He had made a spectacle of the so-called authorities of Israel. The great religious leaders couldn't even figure out if John the Baptist was a man of God or a petty desert wanderer. In their attempt to salvage their reputation, they had actually damaged it considerably. I say that again. In an attempt to salvage their reputation, they had actually damaged it considerably. We can only imagine how irate this incident would have made the Jewish leaders as they left the scene. 
want to give a, a closing thought, a, a parting thought that we can walk away with from our message today. And it is this. The religious leaders of Israel were more concerned about maintaining public support than standing up for truth. Not surprisingly, their misplaced priorities backfired on them. Jesus made them look like fools. And they likely left the scene having lost much respect from the crowds they so desperately wanted to please. Moreover, I want to mention that godly leaders, friends, godly leaders don't equivocate. They never equivocate. They are understanding, but they don't take an opinion poll before they speak or act. They are peaceful, but they don't try to please everyone. They speak with wisdom that comes from God's Word. They know what they believe, and they aren't afraid to stand up for it. Friends, as you consider your life, as you consider your involvement as a leader, in whether you're at work or whether in the church or whether in your family, Avoid equivocation. Avoid ambiguous language. Answer truthfully. Don't take opinion polls. Don't take them with your kids, parents. Many parents take opinion polls with their kids. Don't do that. Don't take them at work. Don't take them in the church. Know what you believe. Be understanding, but don't try to please everyone. Let's not equivocate. Let's speak the truth in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for uh, Your truth. I thank You for this story. Uh, it reminds us to speak truthfully. Speak honestly. Speak clearly and unambiguously. I pray that we as a community, Father, would speak to one another with love, but in truth. That our words would be filled with grace, but they, they would be truthful. Father, that, that we wouldn't worry about what the tide of culture says to do but that we would consider Your principles in Your Word and act and speak in accordance with, with those words. Thank You, Father, for this, this truth that we've learned today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.